Sonic Statesman.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sonic Talk number 87. This is the sort of beginning of the holiday season, and this will be my last week for at least one week. I'm off to, to France for a week next week, so I'll be missing next week's podcast and possibly the week after but we'll see but tomorrow when it goes live is going to be thursday the 22nd of may 2008 and uh, we've got a small cozy gathering with us this week uh, mr rich hilton has gone on uh, on tour with chic to do some gigs in europe so he's flying he can't be with us but we do have mark tinley from sunny cambridgeshire lord Lush. lord mark tinley, <laughs> lord mark tinley. don't push hello. the point uh, yes hello um how are you mark I'm very well, actually, thank you. Good. MySpace.com forward slash Mark Tinley, of course. And uh, we've got Mr. Dave Spears from G4 Software, from G4Software.com, makers of fine instruments. How are you, Dave? I'm on a roller coaster today. Oh, really? Oh, dear, I oh, do. You know, we were talking about headphones and don't put things in your ears and all that kind of stuff. The yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been doing some a massive amount of editing on headphones, and I've got this thing called labyrinthitis. Oh no! Which makes it appear like I'm on a roller coaster at the worst of times, and at the best of times, I'm on a ferry in a kind of force eight gale. Oh Ooh, god! So it affects your balance and all of that stuff. It's brilliant. I've fallen over three times today. Oh my god! <laughs> it's quite entertaining, but it saves money on drink. So, <laughs> oh dear, is there an end to it? Does it just kind of get better? Uh, we hope so. Yeah. 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 Well, what thoughts are with you? Is there? it an anti? Is it an antibiotic curable thing, or is it some? other way if they are to inject you it's something horrible uh they try and um kind of leave it to go away but um i think worst case scenario is they give you this drug which is used for psychotic people oh so that'll be quite interesting oh that's good if, it'll save the medication for the other problem then won't it <laughs> yeah, if, we, <laughs> if we get that far now hopefully it'll uh, go away today's been sort of reasonable but blimey the last week's just been horrible Mm. Well, the uncertainty. When did you find out? How long did it did it take before you actually found out there was something, you know, what was wrong? Because obviously you knew there was something wrong, but you didn't know what it was, right? I finished the projects on a Wednesday, and I'm, and I'm like, never ill. I always work, you know, and uh, I, I'm just not a sickly kind of person. And on the Friday, I just felt my head just kind of shut down. And then uh, I had to actually go and lie down halfway halfway through the day and uh, that was it really from then on you know every time you turn your head it's like whoa so it's quite entertaining i think what happens is is that the um for some reason the hairs on your inner ear die so you don't have so there's no kind of perception of balance at all mm, yeah so you're spending a lot of subconscious energy Trying to figure out which whether you're the right way up or not. Yeah, whether I'm up or down or sideways or whatever. I found that it's it's actually okay if I go out for a walk or on my bikes. But there you go, you see, headphones, oh, evil, evil, evil. Oh, well, I that- was uh, talking of not knowing which way up you were. I went to the BMF on Saturday, which is a motorcycle rally, and there was a uh, what I would say is a kid now, being forty-five, looked like a kid, probably a twenty-year-old lad, riding round and round a globe on a dirt bike. And then he got his girlfriend in there as well, and they were, she was riding round on the x-axis, and he was riding round on the y-axis. It was oh. completely bizarre, and how they managed to miss each other, I don't know. And and they said the only way they knew where they were was because they've got a red light at the bottom of the globe, so that tells them sort of where to stop. <laughs> and when the girl stopped, she stopped, and she sort of shook her head, and you could see that she was completely disorientated. I thought it's got to be so dangerous, but... So it's kind of it's kind of like that then, Dave. 
Yeah, yeah. I, could, I could probably do quite well at that. <laughs> so, does it, so does it affect your hearing at all, or is it is that okay? I do feel uh, there is a sort of ache in, in one ear, but um, yeah, not. I, I hope it's okay. I mean, you just don't know. Oh, no. Well, I, I hope so too. It's a very yeah, bizarre. Sorry, I hope you get better. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me just read this. Uh, this is, I'm going to have to miss this week's podcast as he's leaving to, uh, today to fly for some shows in Europe with Chic. Uh, they're going to do the Hague Jazz Festival on Friday and La Riviera Club in Madrid on Saturday and a private show in Barcelona on Sunday before coming back to the US next Monday. So if you happen to be in either of those places, you might be able to catch Chic somewhere. Anyway, um, this week um, we've got a, a few topics from a chap called Dan Austin in Utah who's a regular listener to the podcast and he, uh, he I think he might have picked up something on last week's show that, you know, no, that it was perhaps a, low, a slow news week, so he threw a, a few topics at us. And I thought the first one would probably keep us going for a little while. So this is from Dan Austin, and thank you very much, Dan, for sending him in. So I'm just going to play this, and then I think we'll all be aware of what it is we're talking about. We all recognise the uh, the tones of Blue Monday there from New Order. Uh, that was sort of one of the most seminal kind of pop electronic dance music crossover singles of all times from 1983. Seven and a half minutes in long uh, in length. I'm obviously not going to play all of it because, um, well, I don't know. It'd help fill out the podcast a bit, I suppose, wouldn't it? <laughs> Maybe if we run into trouble, I might stick another couple of minutes in there later on. But uh, um, it's the recognised as the best-selling 12-inch single of all time. Um, but as Factory Records were not members of the British Phonographic Industry Association, it was not eligible for an official gold disc, but it sold over one million. Wow. How See, about I, that? Utterly brilliant record. Absolutely brilliant. Totally ground, groundbreaking, isn't it? And it wasn't it? And it's sort of, I mean, you you know what it is. I mean, just from three or four bass drum hits, that psh, 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 it's like, oh, well, I know that. Just, yeah, I was just thinking as well. You just—I mean—you've just played it to me down Skype. It won't be apparent to anybody listening to this what it sounds like down a Skype phone, but it still sounds brilliant, even down this tiny little speaker uh, over a—you know—a sort of a Skype connection. It still sounds amazing. Yeah, and that was a fairly low, low-grade version I found on YouTube. And um, I was just reading up on it on Wikipedia because I thought we—I don't know what was used exactly, but I do know that the baseline was a Moog source, according to Wikipedia. Oh, was it? Apparently. Um, I'm talking of bass lines. I mean, Peter Hook completely turned playing the bass on its head with that as well. Because he's playing the dung, 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 dung bit, isn't he? Yeah, he's playing I mean, the it's not, He's not lines. doing the bass line. He's doing, like, lead bass, which suddenly made the bass, like, much more cool. And it was like, oh, hang on a minute. You know, you can... And his stance, I seem to remember, on top of the pops. I mean... He just turned the bass from being a backing instrument into a lead instrument by doing that, and yeah. it made it much more interesting as 
you know, to want to play it or whatever. I don't know. I think there were others around that time who were doing a pretty good job of, of both. I mean, Mick Khan and, um, you know, Pino Palladino and those sort of guys that were sort of really up front. I suppose to Jam as well, actually, thinking yeah. about it. He was quite full on, wasn't he? Yeah, this was, it was kind of, it wasn't really fulfilling any of the low end duties in the track at all, was it? No, no, not at all. Would anyone know what the drum machine was? Wasn't it a new no. I don't know. Do you know, I should have, I know their tech quite well. I should have asked him before we came on, but I didn't. Sorry. Um, Dan Austin writes, um, New Order's classic dance song was groundbreaking at its time and has never really gone out of favour. In fact, it seems to be as popular as ever. And I was checking on YouTube, and he's, he goes on to say, there are several um, remixes of it on YouTube, including one with Kylie Minogue, which is, is quite an interesting one, and uh, Rihanna and Madonna, and they're usually sort of verses, and they use them. And there's a, there's a, a clip from um, Kylie Minogue doing a, a live show, and she starts with the sort of intro of... Uh, of Blue Monday, but then sort of drops into, um, you know, the I can't get you out of my head. And it's a, it's a perfect fit actually. So she sort of adopted it herself. But I oh, mean, wow. there was some, there's, I mean, again, it's just full of great hooks, but it's really an odd arrangement as well, because it's, it's, it's very much a dance arrangement, isn't it? And that was something that kind of hadn't really happened before, was it? Cause it's not really verse, chorus, bridge, middle section. It's just a sort of an electronic jam cut together into some sort of, you know, usable thing. So that was quite groundbreaking too. Wasn't this the one where they lost all the money? Didn't every single cost them a quid or something? I think because they used this kind of die-cast single cover, uh, yeah, they lost money on every single that they sold. So that perhaps wasn't such a smart... (laughs) So from selling a million singles, you could actually end up in a kind of slightly less... (laughs) Have they had the same tech all this time then, since, since 1983? Yeah, he's great. In fact, he's with the Kaiser oh, Chiefs at the minute, but he's, uh, he's you know, your classic old-school roadie. Um, I think the drum machine... Now, the drum machine it must have been an emulator or um, an OB or something, mustn't it? It sounds like a... A yeah, drumulator. Yeah. It's got to be a drumulator. There, there were some emulator samples in there, all that kind of, oh, the strings and all uh, the, 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 the choral sounds and what have you. According to this, I just looked it up on one place and it said it was a DMX. Obi, O behind that, isn't it? O behind oh. DMX, yeah, yeah which makes way. sense, actually, because I like the sound of those things. And and I think they used, didn't they use an O behind DMX on Rocket? I know they definitely used one on the World Destruction, that John Lydon and African Bambata thing. That was definitely an O behind DMX. There's lots of references to O behind DMX, so if it was that, then... I couldn't really, I couldn't really tell. I do know, however, that um, they're... they're they're reported to have said that they wrote the song as a response to a crowd disappointment at the fact they never played encores. This song, they said, allowed them to return to the stage, press play on a synthesizer, and then leave the stage again. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect they might have been having us on a little bit there, doesn't it? That does sound like a kind of uh, a kind of cheeky Mancunian thing to say when it perhaps wasn't the truth. But there was also, I don't know if you dig, dug around, because I, I found another clip on, um, I think it was on YouTube again, of them performing Blue Monday uh, what looked like made a veil for a BBC session. It's not a very exciting performance to watch, I must admit. So, did what did what does it mean to you, Dave? I mean, did it kind of change? Did it change anything for you, Blue Monday? Because it was a very a much a milestone thing. Because I mean, presumably, were you kind of into programming and kind of doing session stuff at this time? I mean, did it kind of increase demand for your your work, or was it a bit before your time? I thought it was, it was really interesting because around this time, everybody was trying. You know, programmers were trying to make machines sound human. And then you had this and the kind of trouble funk guys. And then everybody was either trying to make a drummer sound like a machine or just embracing the machine for exactly what it was. 
So it was really interesting. I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I also, what was the next one they had? Which had the fantastic video. True Faith. Blind Faith. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. I like that whole era of That was the one with the bouncing bouncing guy on the trampoline, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that was a cracker. It's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, yeah, drum machines were used very, like you say, there were lots of people were doing, um, they do over hats and you do cymbal overdubs, wouldn't you? So you'd play the hats along with the drum machine. And then you put the cymbals in as well. So you wouldn't actually play the kick and the snare. You'd just do the sort of the tinkly bits that were supposed to give it that human vibe. Absolutely. And there were sort of drummers. Drummers were sought after who could kind of pull it off, and they who could kind of groove along to that metronomic beat. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. People like Louis Jardim and all those guys, superb. And this was obviously before nowadays. All you do is get the drummer to play and then replace all his kick and snare sounds with, with something else. I don't, think Dur- I don't think Duran Duran did that. I think Steve Ferroni or Tony Thompson. I can't remember which one. But but if you listen to all of their masters, I mean, it's definitely a complete and real kit, and it's tight. Um, my, all the drums on there, and really, and really locked to a clip. To Tony a clip. Thompson was one of those guys, wasn't he? Who you'd get in to kind of be right on the money and just sort of. I remember doing a. I think it's it bizarre. Yeah. I think I used God. to, I did some, I, used to, I did some sound for some, uh, bizarrely enough, the bloke who just walked into the room to see if he could use our green screen, who is now the landlord of the building that we're in, used to work for um, Sonor Drums. And he used to organise all of these, um, these, these kind of drum clinics, and he hired me once to go and do the sound at a drum clinic at Ronnie Scott's, and I think it was Tony Thompson. Nice I mean, he's got Simpty code running through his head, definitely. I mean, and he he sleeps in sixty fourth notes. I'm sure he does. <laughs> I mean, I, I know Warren Cucurulo recorded some stuff with him, and he basically Warren the guy turned up and was jet lagged and was lying on Tony Thompson had turned up with jet lagged lying on a sofa, and Warren was going, "I want you to play this, man," and he's like mouthing beats to him, and you know the next thing they went and jammed and did sort of like uh, eight eight or nine songs in a day although like the most incredibly complicated stuff and warren's going like time signatures like four four five seven nine three two and you know he just got it all it's just unbelievable it's funny isn't it that those guys end up being hired for just because of their metronomic accuracy and the sort of use in kind of what ultimately were in those days sort of fairly uncomplex and probably not very demanding uh, drum session jobs yeah yeah, well, it's not how many notes you play anyway, is it, as we all know. I think any drummer who was getting paid in the late 80s was onto a good thing. Yeah, yeah. There, there can't have been many of them around. So. <laughs> anyway, well, that was um, Blue Monday from New Order, 1983. And um, thank you very much for that topic, Dan. Well, while we're in nostalgia mode, um, I was also noting that uh, Yazoo are reformed and back on tour, so I thought it'd be an ideal opportunity to play a bit of this. Uh, we always try our best to have the best live music we can for you on this programme. This week, I'm delighted, uh, really, from the very top draw of the fabulous Yazoo! Yeah! Hey! How are you doing? Look at that, Alison and Vince back together. Alison, one of the greatest voices this country has ever produced. Love it to have you here. And Vince, no one stands still and pushes buttons quite like you, I'm telling you. <laughs> it's great to have you. Yazoo, ladies and gentlemen, performing live on the show this evening. What a treat. Thank you very much.
There we go, that was Jazzu um, just on the Jonathan Ross show quite recently and they were sort of promoting the fact that they were reformed and also um, touring. They looked remarkably unscathed by the march of time, you know, obviously different haircuts and what have you, but they looked almost identical as far as I could tell. Alison Moyer just sort of looks the same, whatever, whatever. And she has yeah. got a good voice. It's quite characterful, but it's definitely kind of got something about it, hasn't he? And Vince, I was rather sad to see he wasn't backed by a huge bank of modulars and uh, keyboards on stands. He had a, a Mac doing something or other. And I thought the mix was a bit dodgy, actually. What was he doing with the tape machine, though? Did you notice that tape reel-to-reel spinning there? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he had something on it. Simpty. Maybe that was it. It was just MIDI time code. I downloaded the video from YouTube and sort of inspected it slowly, frame by frame, to see <laughs> if I could spot anything. And it really didn't look like that thing was plugged into anything but electricity. So it, was certain, it didn't have a multi-core going in but the it back was a of it, t- it. It's a TV playback, isn't it? I mean, you know, you're not kind of going to reproduce the whole thing live, I suppose, but... I'd love to do an interview with Vince and just kind of find out whether he's transitioned from, you know, soft, from hard to soft and how it went and whether there was a moment when he just thought, oh, sod this, I'm not taking this lot out on the road anymore or whatever. I'd really like to know. I don't know. That was, I mean, when was that? I can't even remember when that first came out. It must have been early 80s, wasn't it? Really early 80s. It was around about 84, wasn't it? Was it? I think so, yeah. Because there was, you know, there was loads of albums from people around that time that sort of promised great things and... A few of them, you know, will probably have one or two really, really good tracks on it. And then the rest seem a bit kind of average, really. But I thought that Upstairs at Eric's was really good. In fact, the other band were Tears for Fears. They, that was The Hurting, wasn't it, that came out at that time. And I thought that was a monstrous album. Yeah, well, I, I'm Tears for Fears are just kind of the kings of 80s production, really, as far as I'm concerned. I used to go down to a, quite a famous drummer's house every Saturday morning and he'd kind of talk me through, you know, this is a Brazilian rhythm and this is that and this is that. And we kind of got really, got into the whole Simmons thing and stuff. So we'd kind of listen to all of these new albums and most of them, like I said, you know, they had one or two really good tracks and the rest were sort of fillers. But uh, certainly the Yazoo stuff and the Tears for Fear stuff stood at, stood head and shoulders above most other things at that time. Here's a little known fact for, for people out there. You, you may know this, but... Uh one Mr. Will Gregory from Goldfrapp used to play saxophone for Tears for Fears on their touring days and on the records. Oh. He was the, uh, I, I can't remember what it is, there's Mother's Talk, isn't it? There's a, that's the song from the big chair. He, play, he played on that tour, definitely. Well, the working hour, wasn't it? That was Will's big, yeah. big moment. That, that was, was him a, playing saxophone, yeah. Track. They must have toured for months and months, yeah. So, um, but I do know Vince does use soft synths. Ha ha. Well, he's quite, I'm, I'm him and Daniel Miller quite mates because I found another great clip actually, which was an interview with uh, with Vince and and Alison. I don't think they were there together, just talking about the sort of old days and how they got together. And he was sort of saying basically, when I left Depeche Mode, I just thought I was going to go back on the dole, you know. And I just had this tune and I took it into Daniel Miller, and who's also featured, and sort of said, "Oh, what do you think of this?" And Daniel says. I didn't know what to make of it, and Vince thought, oh, well, I'll just go and sign on then. And then he got a call a couple of weeks later saying, that's fantastic, I think you should record it. And so he was just sort of, it was, he's just, he seems like a really down-to-earth kind of geezer, doesn't he? He's kind of very not, not very rock and roll at all, is he? Mm. Mm. He's definitely the master of laying all, layering all of those hooky synth lines and making them all work together, because there's oh, like genius. five or six different hooks running at the same time. And he, and he somehow, I don't know whether it was just because of the limitations of tech, the technology at the time, but somehow he doesn't over-egg the pudding. He just puts the, you know, 
five different monophonic lines in all at the same time doing diff- different things and they're all weaving and out of each other so beautifully it's almost like geometry or maths or something i mean it's just so perfect and complete i once had the honor to um to remix a an erasure track which was uh what was it um rhythm of life i forgot what it's called now that's terrible isn't it but i remember the we were really excited and i got the multi-track and it was 40 it was 48 it was 224s and it was just every single it, it was it was 48 tracks of there was about eight tracks of vocal and the rest were just single monophonic analog synthesizers it was really and then you put the whole thing together and it just sort of joined up you know it was really kind of quite intricately made i must dig that out sometime and find sample it to hell i've got some patch um called um you know some what those kind of patch overlays for uh, that vince did for only you um using the sequential what was it the pro the one? Pro one oh yeah he's mr pro one isn't he because yeah and they were brilliant absolutely brilliant even to this day you know sometimes i'll dig them out and set up, you know set up similar things where did they come from around. did what you what those kind of things with the holes cut out yeah well it was amazing um there was a magazine years and years ago called one two testing and this is like issue one and i dug it out i've got mags going back to like 1979 the magazine one two t- i think i vaguely remember one two testing yeah and so there were how many patches was that the kind of um the equivalent of the cover mount back then it, you got these um lovingly printed overlay yeah yeah it's really good in fact i'm looking at it now and it's got some um, tinkle and string for the mid eight and wobble with slapback echo his bass drum with a click and his bass sound and actually, in the same issue, he reviewed um, the Pro One and uh, what else did he do? The Juno Six and the Korg Monopoly, which he absolutely loathed, which was funny. Really, didn't like the Monopoly. Oh. Yeah, no, he says. Um, oh. a, fr- a friend of mine used to be the um, be the rep for Casio, and he's quite good friends with Vince Clark. And well, through that job, and Vince Clark used to use banks of Casio CZ101s at one point. And again, wrote loads and loads of patches for them. And I think that has to be surely a, some kind of indicator of his character, if he's willing to put in, because most musicians will go to a big company like that for gear and get the gear and then just sort of like, I don't know, stick it in a lockup and not even bother using it. And to actually put something back, I think it shows what kind of a person he must be. Do you yeah, not think? you see, he comes across as a sort of decent enough chap. Because he's not much of a self-publicist and promoter, and he's always sort of seen... But, you know, you just his pedigree and what he does with synthesizers is incredible. I mean, it's very... It's twinkly and poppy, you know. It's not dark and sort of mysterious, but maybe and maybe that's why he doesn't get as much kind of kudos as he should. But, well, we did an interview on our site with Gareth Jones, who's his kind of programmer tech. Yeah. Um, and he's been with it. Well, he's done Eurasia, Depeche Mode, Wire, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and he's also a really good person to talk to and really humble as well. You know, he was kind of surprised that we wanted to talk to him. And in fact, I put him in touch with Andy Jones and Andy was like, God, he's written, you know, most of the tracks that I absolutely love. What Gareth Jones wrote. I think he co-wrote some of the stuff. Yeah. In fact, it's really funny because in, in this very same magazine, it has Thomas Dolby um, reviewing things like the Synclav and uh, the PPG and the Fairlight. And in this thing, it says that, um, I think it was the Heaven 17 guys were saying that at the time, there were too many kind of techie programmers around, and there were one or two, uh, hang on, I'm going to find this, because it, it mentions Gareth by name. 
It says, you know, there were one or two programmers who had a really musical ear. And the problem is with most programmers at that time is they also wanted to be musicians, as it were. So they were always interfering with the process of writing. Whereas Gareth, you know, was really dead cool and just let everybody get on and was just one of those guys who could preempt exactly what you needed and set it up in advance. So it just made the whole process a lot more straightforward. I didn't realise he'd done all of that stuff. I, sp- I did actually speak to him last year because he was working on an edit for the last Golf Rap single, which was Happiness. Uh, and I got the stuff and we were in communication because I did a, I did the radio version of that and he had to do something to do with it. I forget what it was all about. And I just didn't realize who he was. Good Lord. Uh, he seemed like go. a very nice chap. <sighs> and Alison Moyer, of course, has been spending a lot of time. She's done a lot of acting and stuff, hasn't she? She's got a great quote in this, actually. She says, playing this material live is not about revision for me. It's about finishing something we started. Writing, recording, performing, three parts of a whole. A salmon cycle. It's like going home. <laughs> a bit left field reference, but I suppose she's got a point. Yeah. Salmon? I think they started off, they were going to do a few gigs. Then they're doing quite a lot in June in the UK. They've done some in Europe and they're off to um, US in July. So people will be able to see them. So I, I'm imagining what they've done is just got together, sort of seen what they can get and found the response really overwhelming. So they must have just booked more and more gigs. I mean, that's what it looks like, which is great because they just, you know, they do seem nice. I'd love to go and see them, but I'm going to be on holiday, which is a real shame. Are you going to go, Dave? I don't know. As Jonathan Ross says there at the beginning, uh, in that clip at the beginning, you know, you stand in front, stand still and press buttons better than anybody. So it's not much of a visual feast, perhaps. Do you think it might break the spell? Yeah, I mean, I really did like their stuff, but I was never kind of hugely mad about it. Like I say, for me, you know, Tears for Fears always had that edge. And I know it's very different, but... I think the thing about the Yazoo stuff is it was very light. There wasn't... It's not groovy in the sort mm. of... It doesn't make your hips move, do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of quite head music, isn't it? Yeah. It's more like blues, isn't it? She's got a very kind of... Uh, not Billie Holiday, because Billie Holiday's more dirty than... <laughs> for a better word. Yeah. No, I but she's got that kind of... You know, she's almost like Chicago blues or something, isn't she? Or... Mm. Um, and uh, the other part of this uh, rare interview, which I'll put the links in the show notes, it's quite good. To, they talk about um, they went into the charts at, at number 198, and that was sort of back in the days when it was like, wow, we actually got in the charts, you know, because the charts used to go like back to 200 or something, didn't they? I seem yeah. to remember. And they were really pleased with being at 198, and it was like, woohoo! And then, you know, obviously, the only you kind of kept kept leaping up 20s and 30s until they got to um, where they did that. I don't think they quite topped the charts, but they did very, very well, didn't they? We're doing only you in the Huntingdon Male Voice Choir, actually. Oh, really? Because there was a, wasn't there an acapella yeah. version of that with was it the Flying Pickets? Flying it pickets. was, yes, <laughs> yeah, it was. I Are think you... we're doing we're probably doing that version, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to hear this, Mark. When you've recorded it, we'll sure, have to de- yeah, I'll, let's I'll debut I'll it on the podcast. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, um, and now I think I'll play a bit of feedback. So here's a little bit of feedback for Robbie Ryan. It's addressed to a number of us, um, so I'll just play the first bit. Hi, everyone. It's Robbie Ryan from America. I listen to your stuff all the time, and I just want to throw out a couple thoughts that I had. Number one, shame on all of you. You're a music technology show, but you've sold all your synthesizers. I do everything with hardware synths. I run a very old sequencer, Opcode Studio Vision Pro from 1998. I run everything off that on a G3 Beige Mac. Now, this sounds insane, but once again, I don't have to mess with dongle to do anything about latency, and everything I have knobs, it has real buttons. You can actually see the little MIDI lights going off. Very, very cool. I really, really like it. But Dave Spears, you uh, even though you make your living off of soft synths, you're a hardware man, and I have to give you props and ultimate respect for that. 
On the subject of Mark Tinley's status as a lord, okay, I have a record from 1990 where it claims that Mark Tinley is the sampling champion of the universe. I think that kind of trumps being a lord. What do you want to be next? King of programming? Sampling champion of the universe or a lord? Hmm. Tell me about this um, sampling sampling champion of the universe where does that come from is that just a credit you put on the record when you were uh, in, in an altered state back in the 90s uh no i think my brother was just so in awe of everything i could do with technology that he gave me that acronym so he was uh i've forgotten what his was he we this was when we were uh discord Discord actually i think and johnny slut from uh specimen and and bat cave was uh, one of the singers Adam was another one of the singers and they were just like you know anything they wanted they'd be like I want this sound and I just kind of create it or produce it or you know lift something off a record and make it work with what we were doing at the time oh, we see. did a we did a cover of X-Ray Specs's, um Identity uh-huh. and we and I mixed the X-Ray Specs, uh Identity with a Mantronic loop and put the two things together. So we did this punk hip hop kind of thing with like two very trashy New York doll style singing. I would like to put something. I I, I thank Robbie Ryan for that. I haven't played all his message because Rich isn't here and neither's hand. So I'll play it when they're here, but I would like to just say one thing. We haven't actually sold all our synthesizers. I think we just said we hadn't bought any for a long time. Rich said, I think he'd sold most of his. I've still got mine. I am thinking of selling them, but I've still got them. Which I probably have sold mine. Okay, so Mark, maybe that was just for you then. I just didn't. I wanted yeah. to distance myself from that particular because I didn't want to kind of feel like you know. Hold on a minute, wasn't quite right. I have to say, if I could have afforded to have kept them, I probably would have done. But if I can do something in a software format that uh, means I don't have to own an expensive synthesizer and I can send my son to a good school because I've spent the money on that instead I think that's a better cause so um, well that's fair enough no, sorry it's gone and anyway thinking about it I work with Nick who's got warehouses All full of, of real synthesizers so I, if I want real synthesizers I'll just say Nick can I borrow the Jupiter 8 or the Profit 5 or an ARP or a Krumar or whatever, and he'll go, yeah, sure. So I don't really need to own them. We, we just bought two hardware, hardware machines. Oh, yeah, what'd you get? Chris bought me a D550. Yeah. Oh, you got one. Uh, and an MKS70 and a programmer. Just uh, like the sort of JX8P thing. Oh, I like, yeah, I used to have one of those. Very nice. It's like two JX8Ps, really, isn't it? Mm. It's more like an. It's more like a JX10, actually. Kind of a cross between the JX8P and a, or it's like two two JX8Ps somewhere in between that and a JX10, isn't it? Did you get? Did you manage to get a bargain, or were they still pretty pricey? No, it was two for a good price. Oh, good. Six hundred quid for the pair. Oh, that isn't bad really? at all, is it? Yeah, that's not bad. What were they? Eight voice or ten? I don't know. I haven't got it yet. He just uh, hit me up on chat this morning and went, "I bought you another couple of toys." Wow. I need a business partner like that. Well, <laughs> I think he was feeling sorry for me. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> well, Andy's actually been in um, in in Amsterdam for the AES show. Um, he's going to be uploading various videos and what have you um, shortly, um, so you'll be able to see what there was at the show. I mean, not a massive music tech um, kind of thing, but more of a high end thing. But there's quite a lot of stuff there, I think. Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production. Producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles. Accurate professional studio monitoring systems. Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile 
motif range of music production synthesizers and the latest N-Series digital mixing studios featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration. www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk just like to say to thanks again to Yamaha Music Production for sponsoring this podcast. They've been very good to us over the last 12 months. And uh, if you feel like you want to show them some love through us, just go visit YamahaSynth.com. listening to Dan Austin's um, piece and that is actually uh, he made it on the, what he calls Oddball Software of the Week which is Wizard Master Control Program and it says it's the strangest tiny MIDI sequencer available and that's their words it's a funky little sequencer that does something that he really likes it can send patch changes with every note and he uses this to ins- uh, sequence external synths However, some work and some don't. Um, but he said it's kind of it's quite fun and it's quite an unusual. It's very binary looking. It's all sort of block block graphics and stuff, isn't it? Mark, did you have a look at this? I did have a look at it. I didn't download it because I didn't want to put it in my PC chunk of my Mac. But I looked at the manual and understood what it did, and I actually thought it was quite cool. Um, and it's and particularly because I used to do the similar sort of thing on the Atari by hand by like writing in program changes for, you know, 16th note sequences and getting it to switch from uh, one patch to another patch before it played the next note. And I, he should definitely contact the person who writes the software as well, because you can make romplers and uh, FM synths change patch. If you, if you just offset the patch changes and make them earlier. So all they have to do is write a, a, a an delay offset. factor, right. Okay. Yeah, to put the, put the patch changes ahead of the note rather than putting it on the same uh, MIDI event, and then, then it will work. Oh, because he says he was having trub- trouble, you know, like you say, with Romplers and FM synths. He, didn't, he couldn't get them to, to do that, but that sounds like that might fix it. That track I just played was called An Etude for Piano and Random Sound Generator. But, uh, I listened to his. Uh, I listened to his other one as well. The other song on there, it's really good. Yeah, no, I, enjoyed and I really that like well. the movement in the synths. It's sort of like as the sequence is going along and the sounds are changing back and forth. It sounds really good. Very. I mean, it just makes it much more interesting to listen to. Yeah, well, I'll just read the blurb for it, and then um, people can go and decide for themselves. Uh, the Wizard Master Control Program and lets you trigger external MIDI devices or, on your or your computer's awesomely. Uh, Simplex internal MIDI instruments with 128 separate beat configurations, eight loops of 16 beats each, each with its own controls for instrument, pitch, volume, stereo panning, and duration. It's po- possibly the oddest little drum machine and sequencer you'll ever come across, and resizing the window changes the loop length, and the tempo can be set to BPM per minute, anywhere from 0.001 up to 50,000 BPM and beyond. And that oh. will sync in with their um, something called Back to Basics, which is another piece of software that they also make. I so, used to use that as well, actually. Well, there you go. So that's another one from Dan Austin. And just want to say thanks for that, Dan. And I'll put the link to his tunes in the show notes. In the meantime, I think we're just going to go to this one. They're, they're all uh, 
little Walkmans, and um, and then each one has a, a tape in it for each note, two octaves of each note. And uh, they're 60-minute tapes, so I'm going to run half an hour each time on each side. This one's for drums. This one's for C and C. So the left channel of here and the right channel are playing. So that was a clip um, that was, funnily enough, put on our new video sharing site, which you can see at tv.sonicstate.com, which has had a sort of rather premature launch, but uh, it's still in beta. But you can feel free to go out there and upload your own things. And this was uploaded by Tara Bush, who is, uh, runs analogsuicide.com. She's very into synthesizers, and she went and visited Mike Walters. And it's, it's a really, it's a beautiful little instrument. Basically, 14 Walkmans, 28 no keyboard, keyboard. Um, he uses the left and right of each of the stereo, um, cassettes for a different octave. So, you know, the, the, the first one, which would be C, would be the bottom octave C and the top. And the, when he plays the keyboard, it just switches the notes on and off. It's very, very simple, but it's really brilliant. beautiful. It's, it's just so beautiful, brilliant. isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. It's just so clever. Because you think about the Mellotron and the fact that it catches the tape and then spools it across the head and then springs back and all that sort of stuff. I mean, why not just have it on a loop and turn the, turn the sound on and off? It's brilliant. I suppose there would be issues, wouldn't there? I mean, because if you've got all the tapes running at the same time, it would be quite noisy, I mean, in the original instrument. But, yeah, this just seems very simple. I mean, with, obviously, with Walkmans, it's kind of... Well, if you had a 45-minute gig, you'd be buggered, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd have to rewind the tapes a bit. <laughs> yeah though that's true or you just only power it on and off you have to power it on and off between songs because otherwise the tapes will keep running and then if you record all of your um cassettes if you record them all on the same machine and then put them in all those different walkmans because i can't imagine that they're recording walkmans are they no i wouldn't have thought so so if all the walkmans are running at slightly different speeds then you could have tuning issues i suppose there is that i mean of course you could you could take um take a you know take a punt and put C-120s in your Walkmans, although the quality might suffer, then you'd have an hour of material, or two hours of material, wouldn't you? Yeah. If they, well, actually, if they were the Walkmans that did that thing, when you get to the end of the tape, they just reversed and started playing back in the opposite direction, you'd be absolutely fine, wouldn't you? <laughs> so you wouldn't need to swear, yeah, so they'd just keep going. But what, it's, um, it's, what, it's no, like, no, but you've just hit something really clever on the head. If you could control the reversing function, right... You'd have patch change then, wouldn't you? You oh, could no, be going forward cool. for five minutes or so. If you started in the middle of the tape, so you might play for 15 minutes on the strings and then you could press reverse and it would go back the other way. You could change patch and then change back again That would without be cool. having to switch all the cassettes over. And if you have that, I mean, we're really kind of getting out there now, but if they had um, logic-controlled cassette decks rather than mechanically-controlled ones, you could actually have them all, you know, how they used to have those things where you could search for tracks on cassette decks. Oh, yeah. So you could actually have patch changes. So you could have, you know, like a five minutes of one patch, then another five minutes, and it just searches for you. We're getting a little bit out of hand here. But what a great – it's sort of almost it's, – it's, it comes across as sort of wonderfully pointless. It's got that sort of thing, but it's just such a beautiful thing. Dave, I know you said you'd seen this. I mean, it's not new. I mean, this has just happened to be posted on, the, on our new site, and I just thought I'd like to talk about it because I'd never seen it before. We saw it years ago, and, in fact, we put a link on the front page of our old site directly to this because we just thought it was absolute genius and brilliant brilliant people who do this should just be carried around on thrones all day long i think <laughs> well, yeah absolutely 
uh, uh, Mike Walters um, is in a band called Mystery Circuits, but he's also got, if you go to mysterycircuits.com, as well as this thing, there's all these other instruments. So he's a kind of homemade and circuit bendy kind of guy, but this looks like the sort of piece de resistance. And there's a number of patches on there. And the, the bit that you heard at the beginning there was Tara Bush, who's this, uh, I think she's based in L.A., electronic musician. Um, just sort of playing it, so she obviously just kind of went along and, and talked to him. And it's it's an old, like I say, it's an old video, but it's it's wonderful. You were saying about the um, you know running the tapes continuously. Yeah, that, that was uh, there was a thing called the Byrotron, which was done with Wakeman and Dave Byro, and that was this was done on eight track cartridges. So obviously it was infinite sustain. Well, that's the like noise a- was unbelievable when you turn oh. this thing on. It's just sort of clank, 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 clank constantly. Amazing. Oh, really? I think it was about 30 made. Yes, I can imagine. And again, you could probably flick uh, between the different tracks and switch patch then, couldn't you, if it was an 8-track? Because you could flick between stereo pairs on them, couldn't you? Yeah. It looks so good as well, doesn't Doesn't it? Doesn't it look beautiful? It looks like a combo organ, doesn't it? It's one of those kind of things. So, yeah, nice one. Thanks very much to Tara Bush for posting that on our tv.sonicstate.com. Sonicstate.com. Compact flash for your old sampler. What about that, eh? Did you see that? I did see that. Yes, I thought that was idea. so cool Very because, I mean, some, there are still bands who are touring with Akai's and what have you, and they just can't get away from the, uh, we have talked about this at length, the kind of reliability of the hardware. I mean, the, and the biggest problem with a lot of this stuff is the discs go, and they're the things that move the most, aren't they? So what this company have, that this company have made, they're called SCSI for Samplers. They've made a kind of five and a quarter inch slot that you put, it's got a PCMCIA reader and you just get a, cold, a, a, a CF adapter, and I don't know, you can get compact flash up to, what, four gigs or something, which should be plenty for most gigs. No moving parts, no fans, no noise, 110 bucks. Brilliant. But I think they need to, that, there's a standalone unit, but then there's also some shots of people who've put them into their own samplers, and I was thinking, oh, this will look good, and it actually looks really horrid. <laughs> it looks like somebody who's just sort of broken the front of the panel off and stuffed this thing in. It doesn't look quite as cosmetically beautiful as it could. A great idea. And they're just so cheap now, aren't they? I mean, I could go and buy a gigabyte of compact flash for about four quid now, I think, from exactly. the local staples even. I don't even have to, you know, you don't even have to shop around. I'd go to Dixon's and buy it for £10, probably. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what do they go up to? Four gigs now, compact flash? Compact yeah. flash. Oh, no, compact no, flash compact go bigger flash- than that. Well, Compact Flash are the older ones because they're quite big, aren't they? They're not. Um, yeah, they're... they go up to about sixteen gigabytes, I think. Compact oh, right. Flash, I'm sure it does. It's Get the whole show on that one. Yes. Am I correct in thinking if you look at the standalone one, are these kind of recycled hard drive? They look a bit unit? like old um, Psyquest boxes, don't they? Do you remember mm. the old Psyquest forty-four cartridge? I've yes. got a whole box full of them upstairs, and they were crap, weren't they? <laughs> Absolutely rubbish. Yes. Yeah. Forty-four megs. Woohoo! Yes. What a yeah. result. Yeah. I remember using those with Akai. That's the problem with those Akai things. The file management system is just a nightmare because you can't fit more than X number of samples or programs in an, in a in a directory, and it was just, like, awful. I thought this was quite neat. I've got tons and tons of samples for the old 950, and I looked, and there was one for sale locally, and it was, like, 70 quid, and yet the drive was completely screwed. Whereas this is actually uh, – this would be quite good. Does the S950 come with SCSI as standard, or is that an add-on board? Uh, it could be an add-on, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember, but I do remember having... I don't know, because I think I had to get a SCSI board for the S1000 when I first bought it. Yeah. I don't remember the 950. It's probably... But, I mean, it's certainly certainly could work, couldn't it? Yeah, the S950 did have some external hard drive options, but I can't remember what. 
I yeah. think it had SCSI built into it, didn't it? I'm sure it did, uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, I honestly don't remember. I, I can't remember. remember. I've just found 16 gigabyte compact flashcards on eBay for £33. Whoa. Well, that's got to be a go. I mean, they don't bother with fans in these things, and so, you know, they don't make any heat, they don't make any noise, so you can have a really kind of, you know, nice little compact setup I mean, you if could you're still probably, using them. You probably put your entire library on a 16 gigabyte compact flash, including all of your ROMs or whatever, couldn't you? Oh, sounds like you got trouble there, Mark. You want some pink milk? Ah, Charlie and Lola. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, the only thing is, though, I mean, obviously, if you're working with most of a lot of these old samplers have um, m- maximum hard drive size limitations. Particularly the S950 could only do was it? I can't remember what it was. Only a few hundred megabytes it could actually handle. You have to, you'd have to kind of. I'm not quite sure how that would work. So you uh, yes, actually, it probably wouldn't. Would so it? you wouldn't you wouldn't get the advantage of it. But I mean, those that can, I mean, I don't know how you can whether you can partition the compact flash memory up into a load of different drives. I don't know. That's a, that's another question. Yeah, it looks like out. the nine fifty is out out the window here because I was just looking at the compatibility thing, and it's um, S one thousand and above. Ah, oh, that's a shame. Well, guys, I think I'm going to call it a day because um, we're, we're, we've done very well. There's only three of us. We've held the fort, and thank you very much for joining us. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to plug again our, our new video sharing site. Dave, you've had a chance to use it. Was it was it all it should be? Uh, yeah, it was a while ago now, but yes. Got stereo yeah. sound. Um, we've tweaked the video encoding so you get a kind of decent quality. Uh, it's also got 16.9. If you've got any widescreen filming, you can just tick the box and it won't, oh, sort of, won't compress it or anything. Um, you know, in size-wise. Um, it's still in beta, um, so I'm just telling a few of you select folks if you want to come and check it out. Um, we're hoping to just sort of fill it up with stuff, and it's going to be a kind of focused place for people who are into electronic music and music creation. So come and check it out, tv.sonicstate.com. And with that, I would like to say thank you very much to my two guests for joining me in this later time. Um, that's Mr. Dave Spears from g4software.com. Thank you. Um, can I just plug and make some website, please? Of course, please do. Um, it's MySpace forward slash Sorry Computer, and it's a really good friend of mine who's just done a load more tracks, and they're all brilliant. Okay, and Mr. Mark Tinley, thank you for joining us. Lord. L- Lord Mark Tinley. Lord Mark Tinley, of course. How could I forget? I'll get I'm used to it one day. just looking at this Sonic, Sonic State TV thing. This looks really good. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you like it. I'll have to go and experiment with my... Because I've got a new camera. I've got a Kodak something thingy that does 16.9 video. Sign up and do your worst. I will. I don't know what I'll put on there, but... Don't make me ban you, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) MySpace.com forward slash Mark Tinley. Thank you for joining us both this week. And remember, um, we're now going to take a break for maybe one or two weeks. I'm not sure yet. Uh, In the meantime, I hope you're going to enjoy our AES coverage. So um, thank you very much for joining us. That was Sonic Talk number 87. If you want to send in any topics of your own, um, just like Dan Austin uh, or any feedback by Mr. Robbie Ryan, uh, please do, and we will try and get it in on the show. You can contact us uh, via Skype. Um, we've got an answer phone there, which is the handle Sonic Talk. And we've got a Skype in number, which hooks up to the same answer phone. You can call that in the States. That's 312-376-8089. That's area code 312-376-8089. Uh, if you're outside the States, uh, remember to dial the international code for America first. Uh, we haven't got a UK dial-in number but you can contact us via email sonictalk at sonicstate.com send us mp3 comments or whatever and we'll be happy to include them in the show thanks for listening